Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome once again to another edition of the Pure Digital Passion Podcast with me, Moses Kemibaro, here at CIO 100 East Africa. And more importantly, as we're here in Diani, awaiting for the announcements of the results tomorrow, we have today our guest, who's Michael Michie, one of the youngest CIOs ever in Kenya and East Africa. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his life journey and more importantly, what he's doing today and how this plays into the future of artificial intelligence in the region and, of course, in Kenya. Karibu sana, Michael. Thank you, Moses. Uh, pleasure to be here. So, Michael, I want to, first of all, find out a little bit more about your background. How did you get into technology? Um, it seems that you ascended very, very quickly into senior positions in this area. Um, where does this all begin? Let's go to origins and beginnings. I think the origin for me was encyclopedias. Encyclopedias? The yeah. old school? The old school large wow. encyclopedias. I, when I was in primary school, that's what I used to carry. And wow. so I'd read a lot on the encyclopedias and guys would go out and play sports uh -huh. during the lunch No and way. Tea. So you're like a nerd just reading. I was just a nerd reading <laughs> yeah. and then I'd, I'd like tell guys, ask me anything from that book. Wow. And I'd, I'd have it in my mind. And so I was torn between technology and medicine wow. for a very long time. I think just before, uh, at some point right before KCP, my folks had to take away the encyclopedias. They no way. Just focus on the schoolwork. <laughs> Forget all these things. That time I was learning the nervous system. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So I was looking at the nervous system and the brain. Wow. Tech was a passion for me, but it didn't hit home until one of my cousins actually moved closer to, to where we were staying. And I could go over on the weekends to his place, play video games. So that got me into, I think without video games, I wouldn't have gotten into tech. Wow. Because I was like, I was so fascinated by video games. And my cousin being a computer engineer, what he would do is he would, you'd get there, you'd sit right behind him, mm, mm. watch him code. What? And he has to finish whatever he has to code. Then you get to play games. So uh -huh. eventually you feel like you need to help him because you know at <laughs> some certain point you have to go home. You, you're, you're probably in classics that makes me about... 13 years. Wow. So 13, 10, between 13 and 11 years. So you can't really just decide I'm going to be, I'll be home at 8 p.m. You have to be home 4, 5 p.m. Yes. And if you show up at 1 and he's still coding, you want him to get with it quickly. So you now start looking at him whenever he codes and he gets into errors, he starts debugging. So I started helping him debug without any knowledge of coding. What? And so that's how I learned. Actually, learned, I started learning coding from that weird perspective of debugging. Then I started learning coding. So he'd give me his books on C sharp, sorry, C plus plus, C. And this is when you're 13? Yeah. So I started reading huge books on Visual Basics, C plus plus, and no C. No way. I used to like take that big book, go with it home, read, come back, ask him questions the next weekend. I got, so that got me interested into coding. Then when he realized his project was moving a lot faster and he had less work over the weekends, mm. you'd get there and he's dismantled the entire machine. And it's like, put it back together, play your games. If you can't put it back together, no games. And it was very, it was high risk situations because this is the <laughs> machine he's using to do his projects. It needs to be fixed. So you can't break anything when you're putting back the machine together. Wow. So then that also introduced me to the component of the hardware portion yes. of technology. And then my brother always been around me and me being around him. We were very competitive. Uh -huh. So once I chose technology, once I chose tech that was i chose tech because medicine for me as an option what i wanted actually was to combine that order to actually build a hospital 
mm. it was run by robots and AI. And I was, <laughs> I was in the class, it was like, I'll have robots, I'll have like systems talking, and people won't have to sit down for two hours to wait for to, wait to see a doctor. Because I mm. used to, that was my biggest pain point about hospitals. So I couldn't get, the, I couldn't do both. So I had to choose, and I chose tech. So as, as I, when I chose tech, even my brother also chose tech. Okay. And then my mom and my dad also now started supporting us. So my dad, to date, still emails me and my brother books to read. What? Tech books. He's like, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, there's this free software here. Wow. And he will read the preface of those books. Wow. And he'll ask you on that Sunday when you visit, did you look at that book about computer viruses? Was it helpful? Wow. So you end up reading. So I got into a state where right from high school, always moving forward, my dad, my uncle, my mom, always pushing content. My mom would bring you all her, all her tiny tech problems, and you'd now have to think, is it a software problem or is it a hardware mm. problem? My cousin would challenge you to read this, code this, do this, look at my code, it has a bug, try and fix it. Dad would throw you books. My brother would write some code, I'd be, too, I'd be so impressed I wouldn't sleep. So I want wow. to write also code that's better than his. Yes. So we had that spirited competition and it carried on to everything that I liked that he liked. We'd always have a very spirited competition. So we'd push each other. He'd show me something. I'm like, wow, I'm not sleeping for two days until I do something better. But that was in draw, that was in coding, that was in art. In chess, I gave up, I let him win that battle. The rest, we still compete. Then right after university, so now you've mm. moved from high school, you're going to uni. Yeah. So, so presumably you did your yeah, standard did, did, eight, yeah. eight for four. Yeah. And now you applied, which university did you go to? I went to JQuart. Initially okay. I to do JQuart uh, for math and computer science. Uh-huh. But my math skills are not, they're not always going up. Over okay. time they look like they were going down. Oh, okay. So, so if you need to lead a first class, doing both math and computer science as a degree would be difficult for you you'd really have to put in a lot of work. Why don't you just do IT? Ah, I see. Okay. And I didn't know the difference between the two. I was like, does it get me into the technology industry? The answer was yes, I took it. So I took math, my brother, I mean, I took IT, mm. uh, bachelor's in information technology. My brother took the math and computer science. And through that time, dad would still send us books. He'd still send us softwares. I, you'd have to come home every weekend. Wow. You'd talk about tech. You talk to him about it, whether he understands it or not. Is you just have to have <laughs> new knowledge. Yeah. And so you, and he somehow had a memory. He's like, have we talked about this before? So you can't not have something new. Wow. So that sort of always kept me reading and everything. When I finished. So a lot of consuming. A lot of, of consuming content, yeah. of content. Yeah. So when I finished, the, I lot of consumed a lot of content to the point where I actually decided I wanted it as a, my path was going to be more to academia. And I wanted all the way to go all the way to a phd uh, okay but when i got into the industry i realized i was in, i was one of the biggest shocks what happened i was still i was i was still trying to complete my degree okay so i was in fourth year doing my project mm -hmm. my project was a video game and ah. unfortunately i built a video game i was told show the economic value i showed the global figures that video some video games beat one video game can beat the total gross for the entire box office within that year. GTA, I think that was GTA 4 or 5, did more sales in a week than the box, box office had done to that date for that particular mm. year. And you're showing this as 
as the reasons why there's an Okomi value to build a video game. And my lecturers are like, no. What is it? it? Build something else. Everybody was building a library management system, mm. bookkeeping system. More conventional uh, things. More conventional. Store inventory systems, online shopping. So I did, I put in so much work. I was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to not build a game. So it turned my game into like a, a learning exper experience for kids. They can mm. learn how to count, they can learn the alphabets, they can learn different animals. You repurposed it, I yeah? repurposed the game. And there's still a lot of challenges because when I repurposed the game, then the issue came up was, where's your database, where's this? But game architecture is different from these other traditional softwares that we have been asked to build. So I had a lot of back and forth. So during that time, I was very fortunate that immediately almost like a month or two mm -hmm. right after we were due to start our projects i had actually gotten an internship at a bank and ah. then someone left the it department and they were like oh there's there's someone doing his internship and he's done it why don't, why don't you just join the it department because he was doing the internship at a branch okay so my work was printers cables <laughs> the boring the, it wasn't boring the okay, tech so support the tech support which for me Unless there was an issue, you just sit down, YouTube, <laughs> there's nothing else to do. So then that opportunity came and then I got there, I got a huge shock because how you picture things and how you've seen things on movies is not how things are. On the ground, to picture yeah. data. I used to imagine banks have these data centers that look like something from Mission Impossible and they mm. break in. And you realize, oh, it's a bunch of servers on racks. You know, like this looks like some of the things I've seen in university. How is this running? How does this... How is this all running, a bank, running yeah. a bank? And so I got very curious and also credit to the CIO at the time at the bank because I think I came in and my, within the first two weeks he told me, have you written a strategy before? You must have written oh. a strategy as part of your coursework. I said yes, I'd never written one before. I went <laughs> YouTube, researched, downloaded strategies, asked questions about the bank's history, asked, talked to different departments, wrote an IT strategy. Because I was given even the previous strategy, so I wrote an IT strategy. I wrote it, I gave it to him. He was very impressed. He's like, can you lead this strategy? No way. I was a junior most employee. So you're moving from intern at a branch. Yeah. Now in the department, you create a strategy. The yeah. next thing you're leading, the strategy you created after watching YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm creating this strategy and creating the strategy, now we are working on it. Then we get these new investors who come in. Mm. The CIO at the time decides he needs a new challenge, so he leaves. He recommends me to take over. To CIO. take over. I wanted to take over. How old are you at this time? I was about 24, 25. Wow. So at that time, I'm like, well, everybody in the department kept saying, I don't want, I don't want to train anyone. Everyone kept saying, I want to train someone to be my boss. Mm. And I kept asking a few other people who are the deputies, do you want the job? Is like, it's too stressful? It's what? But I was like, because I was writing the board paper. At that stage, after I did the strategy, I would actually write the board papers for the detective. Wow. So every time, well, like, I, I always felt like I was already in the exco because my strategy has gone to the exco. My and board you're kind paper of owning has it gone. Now. And now I get to own it. So everybody sort of didn't want it. And the few who wanted it really weren't, I didn't feel like they were aggressive about it because I was aggressive. When the investors came in, I was like, I need to know them as people who they are. And I need to show them I'm ready for this job. Wow. So I actually didn't know at that stage that he had recommended me. And so now the investors came in and they were doing this uh, 
data the due diligence or they did the due diligence and they decided okay we're also going to do a data center migration uh -huh. we're going to move you from westlands uh to town to the cbd where we had where which was once a previous head office then we moved the head office to westlands they came in and they want to shift shift it back there's more space to utilize okay there. okay and so during that stage i actually had like three projects pending on the strategy which was virtualization and uh, there was a virtualization project which I was really pushing, but I was taking a lot of time because mm. the co our core banking provider, of course, now had to repurpose their software to work on virtualized environments. Because mm. it, it was working, but once you put it in a virtualized environment on a, ne on a networking layer, it wasn't functioning. Okay. So there was an issue with the sockets and all these things which needed to be sorted. Okay. And they, they really dragged out the project. And so I, I just prepared, no one asked me to do this. I went and prepared a strategy for our move. Like, if we're moving, we can't just pick up these servers and take them to the CBD. Why, why don't we buy new servers? Why don't we build a proper data set, something that looks more than functional? Mm. Here with that whole proposal and also the software changes. They accepted the hardware changes minus the software changes. I remember this this one time as an email I wrote and I got a response from you know, the head of technology back in Tanzania. The investors were from Tanzania. And he was like, Michael, these things have been discussed. These companies are doing XYZ. Drop this. Hmm. That same week, some of the companies that had been given that work came back and said, yeah, we, we want the tenders for all of these things, but we don't do all of these things. Because someone had, they had won an ISP contract, but mm. they don't do ISP work. Someone had won this, they had won that. And now it became a whole mess. So they were like, okay, Michael had written a nice strategy for this migration, uh, our physical migration. He also did some additional migrations and change of softwares and everything. Can he run it? So the CIO said, I'm on the way out. Michael can run it. And they told me, okay, from now on, don't come to the head office at Westlands. Go to the construction where they were... They were actually building this out. So they were building, they were repurposing. It was already, the building was already there. So they were repurposing, changing the layout, a lot of construction work going on and renovation work. And there was then a lot of the IT work to get everything ready. And so I got there and I found myself now being responsible for most of that project towards the end. I was now doing, I didn't even know it was called quantity surveying at that time, <laughs> but I'd be told these guys have built this much. Is that true? I'm like, how will I figure it out? So I need to figure out how to measure the length of certain cables. Mm. Is it from that point to this point? And the cables have to go up against the wall, run through a trunking. And it was a, such a, an experience for me. And I was still leading the, the changeover to the software changes. Yeah. And we did it. And we did it. And we did also the migration. So all of you in the co-banking migration also happened at that stage. And initially, I thought it would be done by midnight. We were finished mm. at 2 AM. Okay. So still pretty impressive. And then that was a Saturday. Then it came in the following day on Sunday. We were planned to, uh, that was a Saturday, and we put up the, so we planned to do the generator and the UPS on Sunday. On that Sunday, we do the, the UPS. Then we remove the old generator, put in the new one the following weekend. But okay. both were already on site. Okay, okay. And I was like, it's a, it's, it's a whole day, it's a whole Sunday. The, the team, the guys for the generator were ready to do it. The guys for the UPS are ready to do it. We sat down, we coordinated how they'll each test, how they'll, if who needs power when, came up with a plan, and we started. We were done that same day. 
wrote an email saying generator done, the migration that we did was successful, the new UPS systems are there, alarms are working, everything is fine, we are done. They were like, okay, that's good. Then at that, that point, when that ended, that strategy I'd written, which was a two-year strategy, had come to an end. So now I had to write ah, a new strategy. Okay. So I was very ambitious and already spoken to the investors and they knew how ambitious they were. Mm -hmm. And now it was, a, it was now that case of, all right, let's do something. I wrote a very bold strategy. Okay. And I was actually expecting them to come and tell me their board loved your strategy. Because at this time, I haven't been made officially the CIO and the previous CIO has left. So the paper just went and no one, there was no one to, to give, to walk the board through it. Yeah, I get you. So the investors come back and they, and they call me to the, CIO, to the CEO's office. And it's the day after the board meeting. My mind is only ringing one thing. The board loved your paper. <laughs> they're, there, they're like, you've done a very good job. We want to give you an increment. And I'm like, what about the paper? And one of the investors is like, have you heard we want to, we want to pay you more? I'm like, oh yeah, but what about the, I'm like, yeah, that's nice. But did the board like my paper? Did the board like the, the plans strategy, I have, yeah. the strategy that I have? That's when I realized, oh, yeah, there's money here to be made also. Actually, that was not a concern for me at that time. I was just so focused and so in love with the work. Yeah. And this other strategy was a two-year strategy as well. Yes. And I ran with it for the two years. The follow-up one now. Yeah. Okay. When the two years ended, the strategy ended, then I, at that stage, I then moved from being the CIO of the bank to being the chief information security officer. Oh, Then okay. I did that for a year and six months. So this all transitioned very quickly. Very quickly. Wow. So when I finished that, then so when I moved into, I moved to Triple OK Law. Okay. And that was probably one of the best. I usually tell you that's one of my best interviews I've ever had. Wow. Why? Because I went for that interview and the managing partner was like, um, I'm not going to ask you anything about your CV or any of the documents you've sent. I've gone through all of that. Mm. I'm just going to ask you the questions that I want answers for. And you're my CEO, my CIO. And he asked questions and I had answers. And he got to this one question, which I had not thought of. Which is? You're coming from a regulated space in banking. You're coming to the legal side, less regulated. And you have given me all these ideas about this digital transformation and uh, like how you can turn the tech department into a revenue department. Well, after all this investment, what happens next? My competitors may not choose to invest. Mm. The industry may not adopt this. So his question was, how do you get my competitors, how do you get the industry to treat us as best practice, as the standard for the legal industry? I took a pause and told him, it's a very good question. I haven't thought about that. I need a second. Do you want me to take your time? Took two minutes, gave him an answer. Loved the answer on the spot, offered me the job. I, he actually even told me the date he wants me to start. Right and then, then. He, it was the next Monday. Wow. So I had only four days to leave the bank. Are you kidding me? Yeah, so he paid the entire notice period. He wanted me to join immediately so that I could attend the team building so that I could learn the culture and learn the people at the office. Because he knew, Ali on is a very brilliant man, and he knew culture and technology have a relationship. They have to mesh, yeah. They have to mesh. And he was like, during the team building, you will get to see people. And I felt, because I love video games, and I was like, yeah, you learn more about people in, in gaming, if, if you play games, mm. than you do 
talking to someone for a whole year. Mm. That famous, uh, I don't know if it was, they, it's attributed to Plato. You can learn more about a person in an hour of play than a year of conversation. So that also resonated with me and I was like, this guy is going to be probably the coolest boss I ever work with. Wow. And then we got into that. We trans did the digital transformation. Everything went to cloud. Started talking about AI. We started building AI. But how many? This is a few years ago, right? Yeah, this, yeah. Because I spent about two and a half years at Triple O. Mm. So we managed to go fully cloud. We started working on AI solutions. Uh, it was a huge success. And I got recognized with uh, Top 40 and Top 40. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Uh, the transfer, technology transformations within the legal industry. And then COVID happened, so a lot of that had to slow down because now what we had done was we had actually planned to now start building our own legal tools mm. that we could then also then sell to our competitors and we could also sell to in-house legal teams, other legal offices because we got to this stage when we agreed uh, the partnership and the senior management agreed the word competition is dead. Mm. We need to make ourselves part of the market. There's no point of competing for market share when you can actually be part of the market. And mm. who's part of the market? We have the clients we are serving and we have the people who are providing us services that allow us to serve these clients. So we have technology providers and we have clients. So we have to be one of the two. We can't be a client. So it's easiest for us to be a technology provider. And we got, we started that journey and we were able to find partnerships with various technology providers where we'd help them build legal tools. Okay. And they would, we do a revenue share or we would then have a monitorium over a certain legal tech for a month or let's say a year or a few months. And I remember he even asked me, how did you get these guys in, in tech to accept this? Because going to your ERP provider, telling them we have data. All our data, right? By the time we, were, by the time we moved to cloud, everything, anything that came through that office had to be digitized. Wow. Intentionally, it was even physical copies were delayed from reaching advocates intentionally. So that they are scanned or when they receive at the reception, you get the OCR email to you. That copy could come to you two hours the following day. It, could, it would be delayed, the physical copy, so that you could start working. Build the, the habit. Build yeah. the habit of working in the digital. We took away the shelves. <laughs> guys don't have that. Because so, guys would print files, oh. work off the physical files, and then start typing their responses and everything. And we've already invested in document management. You're looking at knowledge management. This is the culture change now. Yeah, so eh? the culture change. And remember, he's actually the one who told me, because also did renovations at that stage, and we got a new office. We added an extra floor. And he asked me, where are there so many shelves? I was like, oh, that's, not, that's an admin question. He's like, no, Michael, you've just bought a document management system. These shelves are traditional document management systems, supposed to be replacing them. You can't give everyone two shelves. No, we took away all the shelves on the new floor. Only HR and I think finance kept their shelves. Wow. Advocates, you now have to either you stack things on your desk, and we had a clean desk policy, so you couldn't really do that. So now everyone is <laughs> that culture for moving into digital. And then uh, when COVID had happened, I remember actually when the lockdown was announced, we were yeah. actually, because we already finished our migration. Yeah. I remember he asked me, how long, how much time do you guys need to get everybody to work remotely? Uh. I told him, I, I need six minutes <laughs> to get off my desk, 
to get off the meeting room, go downstairs to my desk, change a few policies. So they can act remotely. So people can work remotely and that's it. Usually so that was like, it was, our, it was six, six minutes, minutes and we were ready. And we were, we, and I, I think they still offer, up to date, they still operate sort of a hybrid. So Model, some yeah. days you come to work, some days you And you left that legacy there. Yeah, that legacy was left there. And when I left, then I moved to Senna Chattered, who was starting a, a venture called Solve. It was oh, our first fintech. I remember that one, yeah. yes. So it was their first fintech into, into, into Africa. And they came in as the CTO. And it was, I think in terms of learning experience, everything else I had a lot of time. And I spent multiple years in these organizations. At San Chattered, I felt like I spent five years. In a shorter period of time. In a shorter period of time, because working with a company that's multinational and is a lot of red tape, but you're trying to build a startup in there, and they're trying to incubate it with the red tape. So oh, before you go, if, before you test, you need to meet this criteria. Mm. Before you give a client this, you need to do this. And essentially for a startup, you didn't do that. You'd build the product, send it out, let it break. Mm. But now we had to do performance tests. Before even? Even before sending it out. It was, there was so much learning and so much pressure. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was actually, it was very exhausting because it, I was there for a year, and, a year and a month. But we did some amazing things. And that's one of the stages where I actually created, I co-created something called Immersive Agile. Because mm. at that stage, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a professor, and we we're talking about agile and digital transformation. And we we're like, why is this? Why are they always referring to IT department to mm. digital transformation? Why can't finance digital transformation? Why can't finance use agile? Why can't, why can't uh, sales use agile? And we tore agile to pieces and we kept what looked good, and we, he added things around being more customer-centric and mm, customer experience. At the core, eh? yeah. yeah. And I added some methodologies from gaming principles and game development principles. Mm. And we're like, oh, we have a massive agile. And in the last few months before I left, we got to use it. So I was like, and I have a methodology. I have yeah. a methodology that we actually tested out for our cloud migration. We did a huge migration. We changed availability zones. We changed the architecture. We went from the traditional microservices to event to to having an event, event-driven microservices. So we had an event microservice that would manage the relationships between all those other microservices. It was such, it was actually, all this was, we were actually doing this, planning the migration, doing the architecture. And because it's the bank, the bank wants the architecture to meet certain standards. Yeah. And it has to go through certain third parties who must test it. And third parties will come to you and ask you questions. And you always have to have the right answers. You always have to prove, yeah, we're doing this even though you guys recommend this, but this is the trade, mm. this is the trade-off that you want to gain, or this is what you want to not, you don't want to have this there. So there's a lot of learning over there, and when we finished the project, I stayed for a month to see that it was stable, the new uh -huh. environment was stable, the culture that we created, uh, alongside the massive agile, we also started creating teams that were, because we had teams in India, Kenya, Ghana, mm. so we tried to make everybody feel diverse, the people in Singapore, we tried to get everybody to feel they're all part of one team. Yes. And then at that stage, I'm hitting my 10-year mark. And I told myself, let me try something new. So now ready for new challenges. New challenges. And I, I, at that stage already, that, that previous year, ChatGPT had become a very 
consumer available product. Yes. And now AI was moving at the pace where most of my AI learnings came from me playing video games and being self-taught on like all these things about artificial intelligence. And now OpenAI just made it a, a consumer, an end user consumer tool for free. And it was so, I was like, there's something here. Mm. So I need to get into this. So in 2023 started, I knew, I actually said I'd leave in April, but then I felt I'd probably get to April and then say, ah, no, I'll do it in July. Okay, I'll just do it the 2024. So I was like, just do it. So I did it the 1st of February, my last of this day year. Okay. of this year. 1st or 6th of February, my last day. I left, took a month to relax, to wind down from that five-year experience. <laughs> pressure, yeah, yeah. And that five-year experience that was squeezed into that one year. <laughs> and then after that, I did some pro bono work. Yes. So I put up, I went on LinkedIn, said if you're a startup and... Obviously, you need, if you need any help, and the kind of help that you, if you need help in strategy, actual tech work, if you need someone to help you code, if you need cybersec, someone to do some of the work for you in cybersec, this particular month of March, I'm doing this for free. Mm. And I got a few startups that came to me that genuinely needed the help. I got a few large corporates ah. who actually were like, can we also get something for free? <laughs> I was like, I don't think so, but at least... I could then tell at least my services were probably, I felt like oh, my valued, services yeah. were value. Yeah. When I finished that, I'd already start, I had my own company, Vastek, already. Okay. I wasn't doing a lot of work on it. We were building, we were building an AI model to do data protection. Uh -huh. I was moving quite slowly. But now with the transformers coming out and large language models and hugging phase, mm. now we, I, I was like, this three-year thing could actually be done this year. Mm. And so I took all my focus into that. So I started working on Universe to build our AI tool for data protection and privacy. Okay. And around the same time, started feeling is a need for advocacy around AI for Africa mm. because, especially with the, what the Gen AI is doing, it's showing mm. us a single side of of humanity. Uh, and it's the biases. There are biases which are there. Yeah. And it's, those biases are there, and those biases exist in the real world. So it's not an issue of removing the biases. It's why can't we have also African models that have our own African biases? Why can't we have models that preserve African culture, African wow. heritage, and African languages? And started having a discussion with my co-creator for Immersive Agile around these topics. Because he's also into AI. We are both artists. We're both called Michael. We both draw. Ah, okay. And so we talked, we talked, and I was like, he actually gave me the idea. He's like, why don't you start something around that? I was like, you should start a non-profit foundation for this. And I told him about it, and he was like, yeah, he'll come on board. And so we started. We started it, took a couple of months. It only just recently got the, the approvals, mm. uh, the, all the paperwork from the government done. So that was just happened on the 26th of October. Okay. So now we're like, we have it now. Let's, let's get to work. And all that time before then, we were actually thinking, what are the important things around artificial intelligence for Africa? Or some of those things were the arts. Africa can't lose the arts. Africa can't lose language. It can't lose culture. Mm. It's that one technology. And like all of the technologies which you could import and just consume, you can't import this because it has people's biases. It has mm. people's ethics built into it, which are different from yours. Mm. It may solve a problem with little consequences in the West. It may solve 
problems in Kenya or in Africa and then create new problems that scale even bigger than the previous problems mm. or it might create problems or it's trying to solve the existing problem could make the existing problem worse and so we remember we, we, would, we have long phone calls we talk about these things once we got the non-profit running we are like okay now let's get content out there let's reach out to people who want to partner with us let's get this ball rolling and then also became fortunate enough to join a technical working group uh, okay. around the use of artificial intelligence uh, for media houses uh, okay. by the Media Council of Kenya. Yes. And in particular, one of the things that drove me to it, that I, I'm very passionate about it, as in why I was like, I need, like, this has to be done. They said, need to build a, a guidance and a handbook. And within the first meeting, guys were like, can we scrap the handbook? We don't mm. really need the handbook. I was like, we need the handbook. Because uh, journalists have a code of conduct. Mm. Journalists who report on issues to do with, uh, let's say, health, yeah. know the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. Mm. You just can't interchange those two terms. Yeah. And I was like, AI is going to be the most transformative technology in recent years. They need to know what they're reporting on. So they yeah. need to know the definitions. They need to know their words. Yeah. And we can't force a definition on them. But the handbook, in, in, in essence, would be like a small Kickstarter. I get so, you. So that for them to, and I was very passionate. So I was very passionate about it. And I was like, the definitions have to work. And the definitions have to work on two levels. They have to be the definitions, which of course have been accepted globally. And then there has to be a definition that is simple enough that can be translated across languages. Because mm. I felt we'll have a five five-line definition of artificial intelligence with terms like deep learning as a subset, machine learning as a subset, mental computer vision, the most definitions. If we have that, how do I say computer vision in my mother tongue? How do I say deep learning in my mother tongue? Well, can you come up with a simpler definition that can translate across the languages? Across the languages. Because people also, there are people who are working, uh, like at Dead and Kimadi, where they are working on some of the, our local dialects, uh, training models and some of our local dialects. And then that re, that's when they also returned to the idea of AI is actually good enough that you would actually then, after it's understood language that well, yeah. it can actually help us come up with the, with the words, the new words for some of these things. Because mm. I remember, I used to know computer in Swahili as computer with a K yes. and ends with an A. Yes. Then I was told, oh, it's also called Tarakirishi, something, something like that. <laughs> and I was like, two days a long way up with that word. And now we have artificial intelligence where researchers and linguists can sit down and ask it, give us five possible new words that define for this, this dialect that would define this, that are synonyms for this, for deep learning, are synonyms for confabulation, hallucinations, like deep terms in technology. Yeah. And now you, you can now actually see AI supporting the growth of a language while preserving it. So it's doing two things. And I was like, the handbook is important because it will serve to that purpose at some point. And also, no, you don't really want uh, one media station reporting a huge break, saying there's a huge breakthrough in AI. And the other media station says, small change. <laughs> Because in, so yeah. Yeah, in sports, you can say that. Yeah. You can say your team was thrashed 2 nil. Yeah. And the other news station can say, that my team won by a close margin of two goals. Yeah. Close margin, thrashed. Yeah. 
as people in, as people who enjoy and consume sports, you'd understand. You'd feel there's a bias of the way they said it, yeah, and the way this other guy said it. Now, if you if this is new knowledge around artificial intelligence, and they say deep learning, another group says machine learning, another group says computer vision, another group says CCTV cameras, mm. which are connected and have CCTV cameras that are spying on people. And this is like they say computer vision. They're saying two different things. So it's, like it's also important also because the media plays a role in educating, in educating people when they, when they give out the news and they do their reports. Yeah. So bringing them to have the same, sort of the same level of, of thought around the definitions and the use of those terms and the consequences of just plain, of just misdefining terms would be would be something also artificial like within our processes of getting artificial intelligence in Africa up and running yeah. would be very important. So now in this conference as you've seen, I think mm. AI has been kind of like the underpinning topic. Yeah. And I know that that's where you're focusing your energies on. What yeah. is the way forward from here? What are you where is Michael going with all this? Uh, actually <laughs> a lot of places um we had that breakout session around artificial intelligence uh yesterday mm. in the special interest group and I remember it started off with we were three panelists, okay, and we became thirty. Thirty <laughs> there was thirty plus panelists. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone had an opinion. Everyone had to say, and now yeah. the three of us ended up moderating the session. Wow! And it showed you like, <laughs> and people had there were so many questions. Someone was like, "Why are we talking about artificial intelligence?" And so people do not have access to infrastructure. They don't have electricity. Yeah. If they get once they get electricity, they still need internet. Yeah. Why are we chasing our tails around artificial intelligence? Mm. And of course, it's a very valid question. And then. I, Everyone in the group now starts thinking, well, what does that mean? People start asking, oh, what jobs are safe? What jobs are not safe? Mm. You're, you're telling your kids to get into data science. I personally believe data science will be one of the first, one of the, when you get to AGI, data, data scientists can't be easily replaced. Data wow. engineers, not so much, because data engineers, and there's a bloodline between a data scientist and a data engineer. But data engineers clean data, label data, mm. prep data for machine learning models. So that work is always, humans have always very, been It's very valuable, yeah. It's very valuable, and humans do all that data labeling. Because an AI that, how do, you, how do you train an AI to label data for another AI? It's, maybe we'll get there. But until then, I can see data, data engineers having a role, but I can see that data science at the rate that AI is going. In 10 years, we'll have too many data scientists and autonomous AI tools to replace them. So... It's a catch-22 because it's a few years back, yeah. everybody was like, Africa needs data scientists. A lot of schools and initiatives came up with the purpose of data science as something that is important and valuable and a point where Africa can benefit from. And it still is. The, question, the only question is, for how long will that last? Mm. And so there were was, was so many discussions, and I was fortunate enough that a lot of the people there decided they want to take part in the foundation, the Niazakilizetu uh-huh. Foundation, and because people are like, we, we can't wait till next year to have another conversation like this. Mm. Can we even have a conversation next week? Or On this can we issue. Have, yeah, or can we have one or two conversations before the end of the year again around artificial intelligence? And I was like, I can try through my nonprofit. Maybe there's something I could do here. And guys were like, no, you have to do it. So also motivated me. I was like, "Yeah, I have to do it." But one of the interesting, another interesting, I saw around artificial intelligence that people were discussing, but people didn't discuss that I actually personally enjoyed. People did not discuss regulations that much, and I was actually thrilled about that. 
Yeah, I mean, you want to put a noose on it when it's still yeah. coming to shape. Yeah. That's not the ideal it's approach. That's not the ideal approach. Yeah. And even, I know, the task force, uh, government has set, set up a task force around coming up with policies, guidelines, and laws around artificial intelligence for Kenya. But they need to be very loose and very broad so that we don't stifle artificial intelligence development in Kenya and then Tanzania and other African countries yes. leapfrog us. Yes. Because when you, cre when you use a regulation to ring fence yeah. and prevent the growth, because it, it has to grow like a weed. I know. Yeah, we I need know. it to grow wild and quickly. Then we can start trimming the hedges. Mm -hmm. now, we have, now we have a fence. But then if, it's, if you're going to put it in a small pot, it will only grow to the size of that pot. Yeah. 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 Wow. Michael, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, that's a lot there. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, AI is going in a big way. There's a need to do it better in a more localized way for Kenya we, and Africa. Definitely need. And more importantly, you know, with the foundation that you've set up and the things you're doing there, there seems to be the beginnings of something that yeah. is going to change the space. Yeah. I think yeah. actually what I'd love to see from Africa as a whole yeah. is a lot of government investments into research, into Africa building its own fund foundational models. Wow. And one day I want to go to Hagen phase and see pre-trained models, even at, at the f fundamental level, built by Africans for Africa. Mm. And I can be like, I expect certain biases from this. Because we've seen these image generations and they, they have their own biases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would also want to see what it look like <laughs> on the flip side. And what there's nothing wrong with that because maybe one, one other thing which people talked about also that came up was biases. And I am personal of the opinion, there's nothing wrong with biases in AI. We have, as humans, we have biases. Anyway, it doesn't yeah. make any sense to lie to AI, giving it perfect data that we've cleaned, that meets, that is Acceptable fully inclusive. Yeah. Give it the actual, it, and then we want it to solve problems for us. Mm. What problem is it going to solve when it, from the data it has, there's no problem to solve? So give it all the bad data. Give it all the data that you have, good and bad. Let it give you answers. And you can start then removing the biases through things, processes like machine and learning or creating guidelines, uh, putting up guardrails mm. within, within the, your AI product to ensure that it doesn't do certain things or it doesn't say certain things. And then at the same time, when those biases are being seen, you then correct them in real life. In our human existence, we realize, oh, we actually have biases of hiring maybe more men into senior leadership roles in tech. Mm. We know that is a, that, that exists. For sure. So we can't tell AI, just say he or she all the time. Let it say he, because our data has been saying he. For the most part, for yeah. For the most part, so that then it may even tell us why we are, why we are so focused on the he. And then we realize, okay, there is actually helped us see a, a, a root cause to this bias or help us see a new bias. Mm. And then we correct it in our lives and then we feed the new data which has been corrected. Now we now have data which that bias has been reduced or cleaned out. And that is our, if not cleaned out of the data, cleaned out of ourselves. Yes. So it's now, the, it's now missing because within our process and how we do things, those biases are no longer there. And now the AI can be trained on this new data. But then you can't, it's like, it's like it's, it feels like it's an online profile for dating. Yeah. And you've given AI a shiny profile. 
yes. of what it wants to meet. And then we put it, we initiate it into the world, it's the day it meets us. And the air is like, you look nothing. I got catfished. We are catfishing a technology that we want to solve, we want to use to solve probably some of humanity's biggest challenges. I don't think that's right. Let's use, let's take advantage of those biases and work on them. And probably also, let's not dwell too much on the ethics of AI. And I say this because in 2019, I actually took time off from coding yeah. to study philosophy. Oh, I uh, see. Okay. Reading books, listening to podcasts, watching content on YouTube. Yeah. Because I'm a, I, I grew up with that culture of being self-taught, so I just, you I, went into I just went into philosophy and I was like, philosophy asks the questions. Technology answers the yes. questions. I was so focused on the tech that I was leaving the Hitchhiker's Gate to the Galaxy where I've built a giant supercomputer that gives me an answer 42. Mm. And that, has, that is the ultimate, we built a supercomputer to answer the ultimate question in the universe. And after millions of years, the supercomputer says 42 is the answer. And we all look at each other and they're like, what was the question? We have to build a bigger supercomputer, more powerful than this one. So I, don't, I was like, we shouldn't get to that loop, similar to the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, to the Galaxy. Yeah. So I decided, let me go into philosophy that's asking the questions. And some of those questions which trade off into artificial intelligence around ethics, I realized we don't have a single universal ethical principle that every human accepts. We have certain things we can all agree on, mm. but there's no ethical framework we all agree on incomplete. No one says, oh yeah, let's do consequentialism as a form of ethics. Yeah. Wow. Some people agree on that. Some people want to do something different. I may want consequentialism. Someone may not want that. So then what do we do? So as humans, if we've not figured that out, why are we struggling with AI ethics? I think it shouldn't be a huge issue as it is. There's ethical use of AI, which is different. Yeah. But then like asking, okay, what do we do if the self-driving car hits, uh, hits someone on the road because it has to save the driver? Yeah. My question is, that's a problem that, that's a question that's only answered during that moment. The trolley problem was introduced uh, many years back by philosophers. And the, the people have been trying to come up with, how do you answer the trolley problem? You can't answer it unless you're in it and mm. you make a choice. And mm. when you choose, you've, you've solved for it and then it stops. It exists in that moment and it disappears. So in that moment, who do we punish? Yeah. How will we know unless it's happened? Obviously, mm. I don't want a self-driving car to hit and kill someone. Yeah. But then those are the kind of questions I'm like, these are ethical questions that shouldn't be discussed. Let's worry about human ethics and solve that. If there's no need to solve it, similar with the biases, we accept and we give it all forms of ethics so that the AI can be as random as people. Because we can't expect it to be good and we are bad <laughs> and we're the ones training it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Man, you're going into some deep stuff right there. <laughs> but thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Um, I wish you had more time for this conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think you've given us an incredible life journey, how you got into this space. And I think even more importantly, I can hear your passion and your interest in this AI space and yeah. more so the sort of the philosophical and also the, the ethical issues around AI. Yeah. And all the best going forward. Thank you. Okay. A pleasure. Pleasure right. being part of, the, part of your show. So you've heard Michael's story there, everything to do with technology, being the youngest CIO in the country, and more importantly, the emerging space that is AI, or rather generative AI in the context of Kenya and Africa. 
and we'll catch you in the next one.